On December 12th, 2019, British voters went to the polls in what might turn out to be one of the more consequential elections in recent British history. The election pitted the Tory party of current Prime Minister Boris Johnson against the Labour Party of controversial Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn, the Liberal Democrats, and several new political parties. Foremost on the agenda for this election was the question of Brexit, or Britain's departure from the European Union. In this episode, we'll assess the election's results, the long-term impact for Britain, the United States, and the European Union, and look ahead to what changes might come in terms of British politics and foreign policy as a result. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to Blind Politics. I'm Dr. Nolte from Regent University's Robertson School of Government. As always, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the Robertson School or Regent University as a whole. Please remember to rate and subscribe to this podcast on whatever service you listen to it on. I apologize for those who may have had difficulties with iTunes or Apple in the past. We're working to fix that on our end. It's something to do with the hosting service, but hopefully we can get that straightened out fairly soon. And if you do access this on iTunes, please leave us reviews because apparently that is helpful because of analytics reasons that I don't entirely understand, but it seems like something that podcasts seem to benefit from, so please do that. I'm recording this the day after the British election, so on the Friday the 13th, and hopefully it'll be posted a couple of days from now. So this is the first time that we've had things on the podcast going smoothly enough that we can actually do something that's relatively time sensitive. And so today what I wanted to do is talk about the British elections that happened last night. We'll do a couple of things in this podcast. First I'll go over the background of what was happening in British politics, what led up to the elections, and some of the main issues that were on the docket. And really there there were two issues. One of them was Brexit, and the other was Jeremy Corbyn himself. Then we'll look into the election results, and finally, we will look at possible future implications. So the background of this election begins in 2016, when the British population narrowly but decisively voted to leave the European Union, a process known as Brexit. This was something that the Tory party under then Prime Minister David Cameron had been promising to implement for years, the idea of a referendum that was going to give the British people an ultimate say on whether Britain would stay in the European Union or not. And I would say that probably everybody in Parliament in Britain was a little bit taken off guard by the outcome of Brexit. Far and away, the vast majority of British political, financial, academic, and cultural elites supported the Remain campaign those who wanted to stay inside the European Union. Voters apparently disagreed. And as a result, you saw a complex process for which there had been no preparation. David Cameron, the then leader of the Tory party, resigned. This prompted a leadership election that brought to power Prime Minister Theresa May, Cameron's former Home Secretary. For those who are not devout followers of British politics, the Home Secretary is sort of the chief domestic official of the British government. 
And so Brexit negotiations began. May decided to call a snap election in 2017, hoping that it would boost her party's chances. And partially this was also prompted by a labor race for Labor Party leadership, in which Jeremy Corbyn, a far-left member of the Labor Party, more on him in a little bit, became the new Labor Party leader. So May led the Tories to the election in 2017. Uh, but May was in a difficult position. She had not been a full supporter of Brexit. She had not been a Brexiteer but was now trying to implement it, and was fairly unclear as to what her exact Brexit plan was. Combining this with the fact that the Tories maybe didn't run the most aggressive campaign that they could have, I would say, and just sort of expected that the manifestly crazy aspects of Jeremy Corbyn's personality would give the majority, led to the Tories actually losing the prior majority that they had, losing some support in many of the marginal ridings or, or uh, what we would call swing districts. And as a result of this, May's government was upheld by a coalition agreement with the Small Democratic Unionist Party, or DUP, of Northern Ireland, and she didn't actually have a, an outright majority in Parliament. This resulted in what we could best call paralysis on the issue of Brexit. Both the Labour and Liberal Democrats, Liberal Democrats are sort of a, a small centrist to centre-left third party. They lean a little bit center, more centrist than labor on fiscal policy, but in terms of foreign policy, they are the arch champions of the Remain cause. Labor was a little bit divided, but the Lib Dems were a staunchly pro-Remain party. And so labor and the Lib Dems worked to obstruct any of the deals that Theresa May tried to get passed. Basically, the parliamentary tactic here for May was to try to accomplish as much of Brexit as she possibly could, while at the same time maintaining as many positive economic advantages for Britain as possible. But the European Union decided to play hardball with these Brexit negotiations, and decided that they were going to try to discourage any future country from ever exiting the EU by giving Britain as unfavorable a trade deal as possible. It was widely suspected in pro-Brexit circles and pro-Brexit media, that the EU is essentially trying to torpedo Brexit to make sure that nobody else would try to do it again. I guess a more favorable spin would be that the European Union leaders thought that if Britain wasn't going to, willing to pay uh, the costs or engage in the, the sort of political aspects of being a member state of the EU, that they should not reap the economic benefits. So everybody was kind of dragging their feet. It was a very half-hearted process. May could not get a deal passed. And so eventually she resigned as prime minister, and this led to yet another conservative leadership election. This was won by the colorful, somewhat controversial, pro-Brexit former mayor of London, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson is a fairly eccentric figure in his own right. I think eccentric is a good way of describing Boris. He is a member of the British upper crust, so a very old school Tory in that sense, the conservative or Tory party used to really have its, its origins in and a lot of support in sort of the British upper crust. And Boris Johnson certainly comes from that background. He is, or has, has said in the past, that he's sort of distantly related to the last sultan of the Ottoman Empire, or something that he's very proud of, uh, you know, very, very much a sort of pedigreed noble figure. Boris had previously been a, a sort of media personality before entering politics, running for and winning the mayoralty of London, 
and of course he'd served in Parliament as a Tory for a while, and he was sort of had a little bit of an international figure as something of a right-leaning gadfly. Now, I wouldn't say that he was an arch-conservative by any means, although this is the way that he's often portrayed in Britain. He was uh, certainly very much supportive, for example, of Barack Obama very early on. He's not considered super conservative on social issues. He's a little bit more conservative, maybe, on, on some fiscal issues, but not extremely so. But he was very identified with the Brexit campaign, and particularly the aspects of the Brexit campaign, I would say, that were more based on skepticism of some of the EU's institutions and elements of trying to preserve sort of the old-school British way of doing things. Johnson had been an early favorite for the leadership race in 2017, but a former ally of his, Michael Gove, who he'd been expecting to support him, decided to run on his own and, you know, really came out and attacked Boris, and that caused him some problems. But in 2019, he became the clear-cut favorite for the majority of the Tory party now that favored some sort of Brexit. Now, as this realignment was happening within the Tory party, there was also immense internal dissension within the Labour Party. This is particularly between Labour MPs and the rank-and-file. The rank-and-file Labour membership, sort of the, the Labour member in the street, was very supportive of then Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. And this was particularly true of some of the younger, more politically progressive, far-left activist base of the Labour Party. However, Labour members of Parliament overwhelmingly came from more moderate factions within the Labour Party. And so they were opposed to Corbyn and Corbyn's leadership because they were afraid that it would cause problems for Labour with swing voters and in the upcoming general election. Corbyn actually survived and did reasonably well in the election of 2017. And so for a brief time, some of these internal disputes were minimized. However, things started to change as some of Corbyn's more extreme positions came to the forefront. In particular, Corbyn was not either willing, able, or interested in combating the rise of anti-Semitism within the left wing of the Labour Party. And so you have a lot of critiques of Israel on the left in Britain, but the critiques of Israel that are particularly notable that came from leaders within, or, you know, sort of predominant elements within the Labour Party, up to and including Corbyn himself, were often flavored with some long-standing anti-Jewish stereotypes, stereotypes about sort of Jewish money, Jewish control, and so forth. And so there's kind of this old-school left-wing economic distaste for Jews. You find this even in Karl Marx, despite Marx's own Jewish heritage. There's kind of this association with, of Jews with the capitalist ruling class. There's a strong sense of anti-Zionist sentiment. And perhaps there was a suspicion on the part of Corbyn and some of his supporters that they wanted to appeal to some maybe new demographics in Britain that they perceived as perhaps more anti-Semitic. So labor develops under Corbyn an anti-Semitism problem. And Corbyn was, was very not particularly forthcoming in addressing this, you know, dealing with this as, as a problem, and seemingly made some statements on his own right that may have tilted in that direction. The other problem, I would say, that Corbyn had is some of his, his other positions, even beyond the anti-Semitism issue, were fairly out there. He was a skeptic of Britain's long-term alliance with the United States. He was supportive of some international socialist regimes. He had, had been seen as very supportive of Hugo Chavez in the past. You know, he was seen as pro-Hamas and more sympathetic to other regimes like Iran. 
He was also previously associated with being one of the MPs who was the most sympathetic to the Irish Republican Army, or the IRA. And that probably cost him a certain, a certain amount of support among traditional labor types in the northern part of the country who have, you know, maybe some of the older voters that have memories of IRA attacks within Britain, which happened in living memory. So Corbyn was a fairly controversial figure. He'd been sort of a, a crazy backbencher throughout most of his career in labor. Now he was the head of the party and was reshaping the party increasingly more into his image. So when Johnson came into power, you had him trying to push for Brexit and push for a more aggressive Brexit deal. And actually, part of what Johnson promised to do was he threatened a essentially a no-deal leave, or, a no, or what's called a no-deal Brexit, that uh, Britain would essentially just leave the European Union without a deal, which was seen as a nuclear option that would have negative effects for both Britain and for the European Union, U- European economies. So he used leverage from that to get a deal from the European Union that he argued was more favorable than the deal that Theresa May got. And so he was preparing to put this deal up for a vote, but through various parliamentary maneuvers, Labour and the Lib Dems, as well as some pro-Remain elements of the Tory party, many of whom actually left the party and joined with some dissidents from the Labour party to form a new party called Change UK, but all these forces together worked to basically block Boris Johnson's Brexit deal, to block any other sort of confidence measure, and to but at the same time, the Lib Dems and, and the Remainers within the Tory party wanted to prevent Boris Johnson from calling an election because they wanted to, on the one hand, prevent Brexit, but on the other hand, prevent Jeremy Corbyn from winning the election, which they were afraid he, he would, or alternatively, to prevent Boris Johnson from, from winning the election decisively and having enough of a majority to get his Brexit deal through. So this was sort of an untenable situation, and it was made even more complicated by the fact that the British Supreme Court, uh, really for the first time in history, argued that a parliamentary action, in this case Johnson's attempt to prorogue Parliament, which is essentially the Prime Minister can suspend Parliament under certain circumstances, the Supreme Court declared this to be unconstitutional. Now, for those of you who remember your American Revolutionary War history and some of the political thought behind that, the idea of parliamentary supremacy was kind of the big point at which there was a disagreement between the United States and Great Britain. So the British government at the time was saying, we can't give representation to the colonies. You know, they don't have their necessarily independent charters because parliament is supreme. Parliamentary supremacy defended in the Glorious Revolution. And so these the charters that the colonies have can't supersede parliament. And the colonial legislature said, you know, yes, they can. We have to have our, our local representatives and taxation has to come from that. And if you're not going to give us actual individual representatives in Parliament, then you can't tax us. Right, so parliamentary supremacy, apparently something that the British Supreme Court no longer believes in. So I guess that means that we, by we I mean the American colonials, were right all along about how the British Constitution was going to work. And of course the whole thing was started, this whole Brexit thing was started from a referendum, which is again making the people supreme over Parliament, so parliamentary supremacy is basically no longer advocated in the same way in the British government, which is Not something that I've heard a lot of people talk about, but is actually kind of a big change in terms of British politics. So, eventually this dance of trying to block Brexit and also prevent new elections from being called was unsuccessful. And Boris Johnson dissolved Parliament and called for new elections. And so those are the elections that were held on Thursday, December 12th of this year. 
Going into the election, as I mentioned, the Tories had a minority government, so they'd won the previous election, but they did not have an outright majority of seats in Parliament. Boris Johnson was the leader for the uh, Tories, of course, the, the incumbent Prime Minister, who had been appointed previously. Jeremy Corbyn was the leader for Labour. The Lib Dems, or Liberal Democrats, were led by a woman named Jo Swenson. And then the other major political party was the Scottish National Party, led by Nicola Sturgeon. So the Scottish National Party is a pro-Scottish independence party. And they're pro-Scottish independence, but they also were pro-Remain in terms of Britain as a whole. So it's a fairly complex political situation. And the issues revolved around, number one, Brexit. Was the British population going to vote for a sufficient margin of Tory seats to give a an outright majority to Boris Johnson so that he get his Brexit deal passed. And then, you know, the other big issue is the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn himself. Jeremy Corbyn being accused of all these problematic anti-Semitic comments and problematic ties to people who were much more overtly anti-Semitic. Jeremy Corbyn, who had economic views that were fairly out of step with many of the pro-Remain voters. So many pro-Remain voters represent sort of the more financially affluent people, businessmen who have ties to Europe and the European Union have profited from that. So it tends to be a lot of the financial centers in Britain who supported, or, you know, the academic, political, and financial elites in Britain that supported the Remain campaign. But these are people for whom Jeremy Corbyn's economic policies were not particularly favorably viewed. So you have that difficulty. And then I would say the other aspect is Jeremy Corbyn himself was sort of not what you would call a 100% Remain backer himself. The left wing of the Labour Party always opposed the EU to a certain extent because they saw it as an instrument of free trade and capitalism and so forth. So Corbyn had mixed feelings about the European Union and sent mixed messages about Brexit, partially because of his own inclinations, but also partially because a lot of traditional Labour voters were also Leave voters, people who voted for Brexit. So this was a difficult circle for Jeremy Corbyn to square uh, in his own, I would say, far-left views. And, you know, I would say that the general consensus was that if he wasn't an anti-Semite, then he, because of him, Labour had an anti-Semitism problem. All of these things made things much more complicated for Corbyn. So the goal of pro-Remain forces was to encourage what they called tactical voting, which was essentially their primary concern is preventing Brexit. So everything that they are focused on is about tactically voting to block to the Tories. Based on the results, I would say that failed. So the results are the Tories now have an outright majority and a fairly substantial one. They won somewhere around 364 or 365 votes. Last time I checked, there was one seat that was debated that was still being counted, but it's the biggest majority that the Tories have had in Britain since 1970. It was bigger than Tony Blair's majority in Parliament the first time he won in 1992. It was bigger than Maggie Thatcher's majority when she won in 1979. The Tories essentially won the popular vote. They were the largest party in terms of the popular vote by a substantial margin, winning 45% of the vote. Again, more votes than, Labour, than, than Blair won, more votes than Thatcher won, and high percentage for both. The Tories won seats that literally have, have never been represented by the Conservative Party in history. There were seats in Wales, seats in Northern England, you know, both traditionally strong labor areas where the conservatives won. I was looking at the results last night and there was one seat. The conservatives won it once in, gosh, I want to say it was the mid-1900s, maybe 1931 or something like that. 
And before that, they hadn't won the seat since 1722, which was an election during the Walpole ministry, when the, the Whigs and the Tories were the two main political parties, and it was sort of the last election before the Tories faded away for, for a while due to some very effective Whig gerrymandering. Right? So that was the last time before that 1930, I think it was 31, when that seat had been won by the Tories. So there, there are some areas that just don't vote for and don't like the conservatives that have hated the Tory party for, for entrenched class reasons, if nothing else, for generations that voted Tory in this election. And so it was, I would say, a stunning rebuke to the Labour Party. So when we get to the implications of this election, and it's a Tory landslide, I think there's no other way to really describe it. And I'll break down some of the, the micro trends because there are some of those that are more worrisome, I think, for, for the Conservatives and for Boris Johnson. But we have to start from the fact that this is the best result the Conservative Party has had since 1970. And it is a validation, I would say, of Boris Johnson's position on Brexit. He is absolutely going to have the ability to do whatever he wants to do, pretty much, on Brexit. Does that mean that he's going to take the deal that he's already got with the EU and just essentially you know, vote, vote that through and be done? Or will he go back to the European Union, try to get a couple of more positive elements now that he's got a much stronger position, and you know, see if he can get a little bit more of what he wants and what some folks in his party want as, as a result? That I'm not sure. But he has the freedom to do just about whatever he needs to do in that respect. And it seems fairly likely with that fairly stable majority that he has, that his government's going to serve out the full length of their term. So in Britain, you have to have elections within five years. We should probably expect that unless something major shifts within these new, you know, conservative party, that Boris Johnson's probably going to serve out the most, most of that term. So Brexit's going to happen. There's really nothing the pro-Romain elements at this point can do to prevent Boris Johnson from doing what he wants to do. Because even if he does experience some defection, the Tories are, are like I said, in that 364 to 365 range. A majority vote is, I want to say, 325 or something like that. So he's got a comfortable cushion. He can, he can lose some of those pro-Remain marginal Tory seats if he needs to. So that's the first big implication of this. The second is just a catastrophic night for Labour. In terms of labor losses, they're down to 200 seats. And I want to say they were in the, I think they've lost something like 70 or 80. I think they were in the, the 280s or 290s before. I don't have those numbers right off the top of my head, but, but serious losses for labor in this election. They're going to crack 200, but not by much. And, you know, the reality is that labor is trying to, needs to try to figure out why they lost. Was it, and, and this is one of the internal di disputes and debates that we're seeing within the Labour Party, was it because of Brexit or was it because of the personality of Jeremy Corbyn? And I would say probably as an outsider looking in, it's a little bit of both. I think that a lot of British people may have found the way in which the parties try to manipulate things to prevent, or the parliamentarians try to manipulate things to prevent Brexit distasteful. And I think a lot of people also found Corbyn particularly distasteful. There was not tact, there were not a lot of successful examples of tactical voting or voting in which people who were maybe pro-Remain were willing to vote for a Labour MP over their more traditional sort of Liberal Democrat or other minor parties that they might have supported. But that didn't really happen. And it, now it didn't happen, this is the other interesting thing, the Tories did not maximize, if things were primarily Brexit-driven, the Tories didn't maximize their vote because the new Brexit party, which was formed by another leader of the pro-Brexit campaign, Nigel Farage, who is probably in, in many ways more hated by the the Remainers than Boris Johnson, if that's possible. 
and you know has been associated with with more of the sort of nationalist populist right. But the Brexit Party didn't really was not able to come to a vote sharing agreement with the Tories. So the Brexit Party is kept out of Parliament, and there are a couple of seats in which they divided votes with the Tories and probably prevented the Tories from getting in. And there are probably a couple of seats in which, had there been a pact between the Tories and the Brexit Party, the Brexit Party might have gotten in because they were the second party. So the, you know, it's not like the pro-Brexit side totally maximized their vote share either. But the, the anti-Brexit folks, the more traditional Remain factions, were definitely not able to do any kind of power-sharing agreement or any kind of tactical voting agreement. And I would say a big portion of that is because for many Remain voters, particularly Lib Dems and more moderate voters who would traditionally vote Labour, Jeremy Corbyn was seen as just as much of a negative outcome, just as dangerous to the future of Britain in their mind as Brexit. And so it's a combination of factors. It was a combination, I would say, of Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn. Corbyn has announced that he's not planning to lead the Labour Party into the next election, whenever that might be. But if, in fact, the term that Boris Johnson serves is as long as it could be, Corbyn may be planning to stay on for a while and try to groom somebody who could then be his successor. So Corbyn may, in fact, still be trying to Corbynize the Labour Party. And so that'll be something to watch moving forward. In terms of the Liberal Democrats, the third largest party, if you can call it that, that is trying to appeal for voters across Britain, they're not, by the way, the third largest party in, in the parliament. I, don't, I believe that's the Scottish National Party at this point. The Lib Dems didn't have a particularly good night. They're going to end up, I think, with about 12 seats. The SNP did have a pretty good night. In fact, the SNP sometimes had a good night at the expense of the Lib Dems. Jo Swenson, who is the leader of the Lib- Liberal Democrats, lost her seat to an SNP candidate in Scotland. So the Tories and Labour also took serious losses in Scotland. Labour lost, I think, all but two of their seats, and the Tories held seven of their 13 seats from the previous election. So it was a good night for the SNP. They expanded their numbers considerably. They're overwhelmingly the largest party in the Scottish delegation. And so we have to wonder if and when Boris Johnson gets his Brexit deal done and when Britain leaves the EU, whether or not Scotland is going to hold another independence referendum, because the SNP certainly performed well in Scotland last night. So how that goes ultimately, I think is something to watch moving forward. Finally, in Northern Ireland, it's worth noting that the DUP and the Unionists in general did not perform super well. Several constituencies were won by the Nationalists, the Nationalists being forces that are known as Irish Republicans, so the Sinn Féin, the Social Democratic Labour Party, or SDLP. And then there's one party that is trying to be a centrist party that brings together the traditional Nationalist and Unionist or Republican and Unionist constituencies called the Alliance. And the Alliance is back in Parliament. They've won a couple of seats. So Northern Ireland is interesting because you saw a shift in Parliament from the sort of slight Unionist majority among Northern Irish voters, at least in seats, to more seats that were won by Republican candidates. Of course, Sinn Féin, which is the traditional political wing of Irish Republicanism, it used to be explicitly tied to the IRA, which is not as much a thing as it used to be, but Sinn Féin has, has tried to really go political. Sinn Féin MPs refuse to take their seats because they won't take oath to the Queen of England because they want to be part of Ireland instead. So in practical terms, the majority of MPs that are actually going to be seated are still Unionists. But it is a bit of a demographic shift. It represents the degree to which things are, are possibly changing in Northern Ireland. And so that is definitely also something to watch as we move forward with Brexit and as British politics moves on. 
What are the implications of this election? First of all, as you mentioned previously, Brexit's going to get done. It's a matter of when and how, not if. And so any attempt to, to sort of forestall that from the Remain side is pretty much dead on arrival at this point. It's just a question of how Boris Johnson wants to go about doing that and the mechanism, the procedures, and how long it takes. The implications of that are hard to determine at this point. Is it a blow to the European Union? Yes, probably. Is it a fatal blow to the European Union? No, probably not. What's more interesting to me is what happens in Britain after Brexit. Does Britain try to reorient itself in some way? If it's not going to be part of the European Union, is Britain going to look for a different trade bloc, a different sort of economic relationship? Where if it's more distant to Europe, is it maybe trying to strengthen its ties with other former Commonwealth countries? You've seen some on the pro-Brexit side make arguments in support of that position, that really Britain's future is in the Anglosphere, in, in those countries around the world where English is their mother tongue, where the Union Jack used to fly, many of whom are called Westminster Parliamentary Systems, so government systems that look like Britain. Is that something that Britain is going to try to do, to create more of a trading bloc that's based on the old Commonwealth? I think that would make a lot of sense for Britain, both from a cultural perspective, from a what's already in place perspective, because there is a certain amount of immigration, free trade, and so forth that happens between Britain and the Commonwealth countries. It's easier to get visas and so forth. And from the perspective of traditionally Britain has always wanted to be part of something that was a little bit bigger. The British Empire is a classic example of that. When you're an, a small island power with a reasonably good economy and you know strong military, it helps to have large, more powerful allies or sort of large, powerful bloc that you're a part of. Europe, the European Union, I think um, Britain would be worried about more from a, a cultural assimilation perspective and, and losing that British distinctives. So they might look to form some sort of alliance or, or broader relationship with countries that share more of those British distinctives. Now the question is how broadly that gets drawn, because one of the big concerns for some Brexiteers, particularly folks like Nigel Farage, was the issue of immigration, and mass immigration, particularly in the wake of the refugee crisis, as causing uh, instability in their view in British society. So how is that going to be handled? Because if you're doing a, a deal with some of the bigger Commonwealth countries and some of the poorer Commonwealth countries that have some of this political, linguistic, and institutional heritage of Great Britain, immigration is part of the deal. And so that may cap the extent to which Britain can pursue that strategy, at least early on. But certainly they could reach out to Canada, they could reach out to Australia, they could reach out to New Zealand, some of the other more upper-income countries and jurisdictions like Singapore and so forth. The other thing that I'm slightly interested in is whether the newly empowered government of Boris Johnson will try to do something involving Hong Kong. Britain used to have sovereignty over Hong Kong before it was returned to China in 1997. As we know, there's been a lot of sort of discontent there. And is that an area where Britain could sort of look at that and say, try to cut a deal with, with the Chinese government and maybe talk to and negotiate with Xi Jinping about Hong Kong and on behalf of Hong Kong, simply because... I think, realistically speaking, it's very difficult to see how China is going to be able to successfully impose its political system on Hong Kong without driving away most of the foreign investment that makes Hong Kong valuable to the PRC in the first place. So if you kill Hong Kong from the perspective of its you know, special status, then essentially you're killing a lot of the value. You're, you're devaluing that property. And so I wonder if there's not going to be some deal that Boris is going to try to reach out to China about vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong and its long-term permanent status. So these are just a couple of ideas of things that might happen uh, in terms of how Britain goes in the future. There's, of course, also the question of Scotland and Ireland. 
Scotland because there's already a strong Scottish nationalist movement. And if Britain does in fact leave the EU, there's a very strong pro-Remain, pro-EU sentiment in Scotland. So might the Scots consider trying to secede from Britain in an effort to rejoin the European Union? I could certainly see that being something that Scotland would consider. And that would be a not particularly great scenario for Boris Johnson and the Tories. So how are they going to keep Scotland in Britain while themselves getting out? That's a difficult thing to negotiate. And then Northern Ireland, making sure that there's still relationships between the North and the Republic, an issue that had faded to a certain extent because of the presence of both in the EU. There have been talks about the deal that Johnson negotiated. There was what was called the Irish backstop, which is going to allow for free movement of goods and people and so forth across those borders. But that is certainly something that is going to have to be part of the deal to keep things from becoming problematic for Britain in Northern Ireland. The implications of this for the United States. First of all, I think the U.S. has to sort of start with a sigh of relief because Jeremy Corbyn would have been bad from a U.S. perspective. There's really no other way to look at it. Corbyn was antithetical to the U.S. alliance. He viewed most of our allies around the world, U.S. allies around the world, in a very negative light. Economically, I think he would have been a disaster for Britain. And I think it was really a choice. The British people were given a choice. And I don't think it was put in these stark terms. But they're given a choice between the American alliance and a possibility of staying in the EU. Boris is certainly not going to do anything to upset the American alliance. But uh, Jeremy Corbyn was iffy on the question of whether he was going to stay in the, in the European Union. But I think it was pretty clear that he was going to try to move Britain away from its alliance with the United States and take a very dangerously anti-American position on a number of issues. And at a time at which American alliances around the world are under strain, often because we have an administration that is skeptical of the value of a lot of these alliances, that would have been bad. Britain moving out of that alliance system, you know, would Jeremy Corbyn have tried to pull Britain out of NATO? I, I don't think we could honestly say that he wouldn't have tried or that, you know, that his own inclinations didn't lean in that direction. So I think that's a good thing from, from a U.S. perspective. In terms of Brexit, I think most American conservatives are supportive of the idea of Brexit. They sort of have this sympathy, I would say, for the British right and for the, the British Toryism to a certain degree that can be very strong in the U.S. conservative circles. I do think that Brexit potentially causes some headaches for the United States because it will make the relationship between Britain and countries that are still in the EU a little bit worse. I don't necessarily put any stock whatsoever in the idea of the European Union being a force that is somehow capable of balancing against Putin's Russia or even desirous of doing so. If given the chance, France and Germany will make a deal rather than actually try to do anything to protect Eastern Europe against Putin's predation. We've seen this over and over and over again. The Western Europeans just don't have the stomach for any kind of forceful deterrence in the international sphere. They probably never will again. They certainly don't now. We should not count on them for that unless we're willing to take the lead. So the reality is, and I think Putin understands this and has understood this for decades, that the only real threat to Putin gaining a freer hand in Eastern Europe is the United States of America and always has been the United States of America because the EU was never really going to be effective at doing that. However, the United States can't and probably shouldn't try to do that alone. And one of the more important mechanisms for doing that is NATO. And, you know, NATO, because NATO has the United States in it, because it is this more military-focused alliance that is explicitly geared at the Russians, whereas the EU is trying to do other things, and the EU is not exactly 
100% pro-American either. In some ways, the EU, I think, would like to be an economic competitor of the United States. But I would say, in terms of NATO, tension between countries like Britain on one hand and France, Germany, and the other EU countries on the other could be problematic. And so that's something where U.S. leadership is going to be key. And that, again, means that we need to reaffirm the importance of NATO and continue to play a decisive role there. And I would say that I'm not super confident that anybody currently in the ring in terms of the presidency on either party's side understands the importance of that and the importance of preserving NATO as a check against potential Russian, let's just say, grabbiness. Grabbiness is a very technical political science term, but grabbiness in Eastern Europe. So that's potentially problematic. You know, obviously it's not our business what Britain does or doesn't do in the EU because, you know, we're a sovereign country, they're a sovereign country, etc. But there are some aspects of Brexit that as Americans we need to pay attention to, in particular, whether it puts any of the aspects of the NATO alliance under strain, because NATO is still very important. In the long run, I do think this is going to change British politics, because you're starting to see in Britain a realignment where the right is increasingly now representative of more what I would say, uh, working class voters. So traditional labor strongholds that are breaking now for the Tories, where the left is moving in that direction of being a more upscale, what we would in the United States call sort of coastal progressive or white progressive, but much more sort of urbanized, elite-driven political party. I mean, that seems to be the, or political movement. That seems to be the destiny that the left is heading toward. In the long run, I would say this is, you know, demographically, they could say this is something that's going to be potentially beneficial. Certainly, they're going to be, like a lot of leftist parties in the West, including the United States, dependent on younger voters, immigrants, and so forth, and the super-rich as their sort of core constituencies. The challenge for the left in Britain is that they're divided. So, you know, if you combine the SNP, Labour, and the Lib Dems, yeah, maybe you would have had enough votes to have a unified left bloc that would have been stronger than the Tories. I mean, the Tories got 45%, which means that effectively they didn't get 55%. If you throw in Brexit and the DUP, maybe that puts them up to mm, somewhere around 46 or 47. But that's also a historically good result for the Tories that they haven't seen since 1970. So Britain is more to the left, but their left is very divided, is divided between the traditional sort of economic left of the Labour Party and the more upscale, progressive, sort of economically center-left, but more culturally elite-driven, I would say socially progressive, party that is represented by the Liberal Democrats. You know, the Lib Dems have definitely become, they were not always, but they have become that traditional sort of upscale social progressive party. And I think that has implications also for the United States because there are similar divides within the U.S. Democratic Party. There are divides between more upscale, socially progressive voters who tend to be more overwhelmingly white and between poorer voters who are more concerned about economic issues, they care about some of the social issues, but they're more moderate on other social issues who tend to be overwhelmingly less white because most of those downscale you know, less economically affluent white voters that were Democrats during the New Deal era have almost entirely defected to the Republican Party at this point. So this divide between the, the more affluent left and the less affluent left in Britain is leading to a realignment, but that's also a real alignment that voters in the United States should be watching because it may speak to elements of American politics, particularly as we're heading to our own primary season, that a divide that may run through the Democratic primary. This isn't something entirely new. I mean, we're talking about in the Obama-Clinton primary of 
of 2008, there was this idea of Starbucks Democrats versus Dunkin' Donuts Democrats. And the reason that Obama won with the Starbucks Democrats was because he overwhelmingly won the support of African-American voters. And so if you have that combination, if you have a coalition between white progressives and African-Americans in the Democratic primary, you're going to win. But what if there's a divide between the two? You know, as I talked about in the Biden podcast, I bet on still on whoever wins the African-American votes. In Britain, however, that divide is not quite as racialized. There's not as substantial a racial divide among Britain's poor, although that may be changing with immigration. And of course, immigrant communities are, are far from monolithic. So it'll be interesting to see how some of those demographics and shifts in party coalitions play themselves out in British politics moving forward. But for now, what we're looking at for the foreseeable future is Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And at a minimum, that means that as long as he is Prime Minister and Donald Trump is President, meetings between the two will remain colorful, intriguing spectacles, and probably fodder for all kinds of fascinating social media gossip. So at a minimum, insofar as being entertained by politics is your goal, Boris and Trump combined should be fairly entertaining. All right, that's going to be a wrap for this episode. Thanks very much for listening. Again, please remember to rate and subscribe. And we're going to hopefully continue to put these podcasts out weekly. There may be some special episodes. We'll see, depending on how things go. I'm also going to try to record a couple more episodes that are much more topical like this. And so expect one in the not-too-distant future on some of the things that are happening in the Middle East. That's going to be more of a catch-all episode because there's been a lot of different stuff going on. I'm going to try to synthesize that. So with that being said, for Blind Politics, I'm Dr. Nolte, signing off. <laughs>